Hi, Vet Girl here today with Dr. Susan Little, feline expert at NAVC 2014. And today we're going to be talking about all things feline. So, Dr. Little, first of all, what's new in feline leukemia that I need to know about as a practitioner? Well, you know, one of the things I wanted to tell you about was some research that my group just finished and that we did present here at NAVC, talking about the link between oral inflammatory disease in cats, which we all see, you know, those cats with stomatitis, gingivitis, those painful mouths, and that link with feline leukemia virus infection and FIV. Until now, we never really had good data on how many of those cats might be retrovirus infected. So we were fortunate enough to be able to gather data on over 5,000 cats, have veterinarians classify their oral disease according to the American Veterinary Dental College classification system, and submit the results of retrovirus tests, FELUC and FIV on them. So we were able to determine that indeed cats with stomatitis and gingivitis, those in uh, particularly the inflammatory uh, types of oral disease, are at a high risk of being FELV or FIV infected. So I think it's going to change some of our management, some of our guidelines, and encourage us that when we do have cats in for dentistry, uh, we often do pre-anesthetic bloods. Those would be cats that if they've not been recently tested for retroviruses, you would want to include that now. I think our rates are high enough that I think it bears uh, recommending that, that we would do some FELUC and FIV testing on those cats as part of their workup. Excellent. And can you give me an update on, is there anything new with FIV? Yeah, there is. There's some relatively new findings, again, from uh, our group looking at diagnostics for FIV. So we all know that there are some issues in trying to determine the FIV status of a cat because it's an antibody-based test that we all routinely use for screening these cats. And we know that kittens, for example, can have maternally acquired antibodies that will make that test turn positive when they're not truly infected. And we know that cats that have been given the FIV vaccine, uh, of course, they make antibodies and they will test positive. And some of the work that our group has been doing, in fact, has found that many cats will stay FIV antibody positive for years even if they stopped getting the FIV vaccine, we've had them test antibody positive four and five years later, and they're not infected because, you know, we've evaluated those cats. So that's a, a diagnostic conundrum for us. Of course, enter PCR testing. About 10 years ago, we had a number of good groups in Canada and the U.S. look at how accurate PCR testing was to tell us if a cat was truly infected with FIV or not. And at that time, you know, it really wasn't ready for prime time. It didn't perform very well. FIV is a difficult diagnosis diagnostic target because it's so genetically diverse. But here we are, 10 years later, we have new generation of PCR tests available. So our group decided time to look again. So we did have a look at, a new look at one of the commercially available FIV tests. Does it do any better now than those tested years ago? So I'm really happy to report we published in the Journal of Feline Medicine Surgery just a few months ago that yes, indeed, at least for the one lab we evaluated, these tests perform much better now and they are much more reliable to tell if a cat is truly infected with FIV or not. Now, every lab's 
PCR test is different. So it's not always possible to extrapolate from one lab to another, but it tells us they're doing better with their methodology. So that's good news for diagnostics. Excellent. And then I had two last questions, one on FIP and one on three tips on how to make your practice more feline friendly. So first of all, with FIP, is there any new research going on in terms of prognosis, uh, prognostic factors, or even treatment? Yeah, FIP is another really interesting uh, disease. You know, if you like infectious diseases, boy, that's a fascinating one because it doesn't play by any of the rules that all the other diseases um, play by. So we do have a new uh, product on the market. It's not actually licensed for FIP. It has a conditional license for treating herpes virus. It's called polyprinyl immunostimulant from a company called Vetimmune. But there is some data in the literature on success using it to treat dry FIP cases. So in terms of extending lifespan. So that's the first really good news we've had for years in, in FIP treatment. I also can tell you, because I um, serve on the board of the Wynn Feline Foundation, that we have some funded wonderful research, exciting research recently, looking at some novel ways to treat cats using some really, you know, fancy new technologies that I had to learn about, like small interfering RNA molecules that block um, the virus's ability to enter cells and, and replicate. So there's some really smart people, both in North America and abroad, looking at totally new molecular ways to devise targets to give us new treatments. So, you know, I feel more optimistic about FIP now than I have in years. So I think we've got even more good news to come. All right. And then can you leave us with three vignettes for the small animal practitioner that sees both dogs and cats that um, we can easily implement to make our practice more feline friendly that go beyond the obvious ones? So I think one of the most obvious things or let's say the most important things that you need to address with cat owners is literally how to get the cat to the clinic. So one of the things that we discovered in my practice was, you know, you would occasionally have an owner who had a, a scheduled appointment and they would call up and say, oh, you know, I can't make my appointment today. And sometimes they'd volunteer a reason like, you know, my work schedule's changed and I can't come in. Often they might not give you a reason. We've learned to ask them politely did you happen to have any trouble getting your cat in the carrier or in the car? And surprisingly, quite a few people would then say, yeah, actually, I've just chased her around the house for an hour and now I can't find her. But they might be embarrassed to volunteer the information if you don't ask. So that is a, amazingly a huge barrier to getting cats in. So we've become proactive. We send information out to new clients, give them video links, give them brochures. So take that bull by the horns and be proactive. Once they get into your clinic, I think if there's two important things I could tell you, one is try to have a quieter feline friendly area, even if it's just a corner of your waiting room where they can be away from the dogs, or if your layout says you can't do that, please move them from the waiting room into the exam room as soon as possible. Even if they have to wait for the doctor, they'd rather wait in there where it's quiet. And the third tip I will tell you is try to do as much as you can in the exam room. So we do uh, a lot of things in the exam room that we used to take the cat to the back for. And you know, for a long time, uh, the reason not to take the cat to the back was so that clients wouldn't wonder what you're doing. I think actually the more important reason is because the cat acclimates to the exam room, and when you move them out of there, they start all over again acclimating to a new space. So I would rather ask the client to step out of the exam room than make the cat leave the exam room. So think about having everything you need at hand in the exam room for simple things like blood draws or, you know, nail trimmings. And if you're uncomfortable or the 
client's uncomfortable, ask the client to go out in the waiting room for five or ten minutes, you know, get them a cup of coffee, and you work in the exam room with the cat. Fantastic tips from Dr. Susan Lidoff. Thank you so much for a fantastic Vet Girl podcast today. 